Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, an in-depth conversation, a continuation in our Pioneer series with a man who's integrated two things on the surface don't look many, very systemic, depression and hypnosis. The man is Dr. Michael Yapko. This is an interview that I had so much fun conducting because it was a journey through MFT's past. Uh, Michael has sat under the learning tree of such luminaries as Jay Haley, Virginia Satir, Aaron Beck. So he's a great historian of the field as well as a pioneer. Again, a man who has taken things that don't look very systemic and made them relational in ways that both clinicians and consumers, potential clients can relate to. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Dr. Michael Yapko is a clinical psychologist and marriage and family therapist residing in Fallbrook, California. He's internationally recognized for his work in developing strategic outcome-focused psychotherapies, the advancement of the clinical applications of hypnosis, and active short-term non-pharmacological treatments of depression. He routinely teaches to professional audiences all over the world, and to date he has been invited to present his ideas and methods to colleagues in more than 30 countries across six continents and all over the U.S., and he's a frequent speaker at the AAMFT. He's the author of 15 books, the editor of three others, as well as dozens of book chapters and journal articles. He's a fellow of the APA and a clinical fellow of the AMFT and the member of the International Society of Hypnosis. This is a great interview. Whether you're young or old, you will learn a lot. Some great stories. And if you hang on till the end of the interview, animal lovers will have a whole new appreciation for how we can take our systemic work and apply it to a completely different discipline. Pleased to be joined by Dr. Michael Yabko, a guy I have been wanting to talk to for a long time on the podcast because he is both uh, an innovator and, I believe, an historian of the field. He has a great respect for the past that leads us into the future. So we're going to talk about a lot of things today. But Michael, if you listen to the show, the first question is always, how did you decide to become a systemic therapist? Well, first, thanks very much for inviting me to do this with you. I think that if you have any understanding of the complexity of things, that things are usually a little bit more complicated than you sometimes expect them to be. You can't really help but start to think in multidimensional terms. And uh, so thinking systemically came pretty naturally to me. So I can't say there was a starting point uh, as I approached the field in the very beginning. I was interested in multi-causality 
and social contributions as well as psychological contributions to the problems that people had. So it was really just a natural progression in terms of my own style of thinking to move into an area where thinking systemically would be recognized and even rewarded. Some people think very early on they want to be some type of helping professional. I've interviewed people over the last three years for the podcast. They said, oh, since I was 14, Chloe Madonna said, uh, I think she was like 10 and she knew she was going to do something like this. When did you know you actually wanted to be a clinician and do something applied? Uh, when I was an undergraduate student at University of Michigan, Go Blue, I was aimless. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I had so many interests in so many areas from political science to history to biology to marine biology. And what happened was a summer semester in between spring and fall, usual semesters, they were offering just a two-credit program called Project Outreach. And you could choose from amongst probably a dozen different places that you could volunteer time, get two academic credits, and get some experience doing something you wanted to do. Well, one of the locations was Ypsilanti State Hospital, a psychiatric hospital that was in the old snake pit variety uh, genre. Uh, this Like was, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That kind of a place, uh, only worse. It was the kind of place that before you walked into a room, you would first turn the lights, reach around and turn the lights on so that whatever was going to crawl away could crawl away. And I had never been in a psychiatric hospital. I didn't know anything other than one flew over the cuckoo's nest. So I was really interested to have that experience, as were a number of other people. So they put us on a bus and took us out to Ipsy State Hospital. And this was the worst of the worst. These were human beings that were being warehoused. They were so chronic, so severe, uh, they'd been forgotten about. And the only treatment they were getting was, of course, medication. And at that time, medication was pretty strong and, and lots of side effects. And nobody expected these people to get better. So I was shocked and appalled by the conditions. And for whatever reason, I ended up connecting with this one resident, an, an older woman who uh, was very psychotic, but every once in a while she'd say something that was crystal clear, and there was an ability to connect. And I developed an empathy for this lady, a sympathy for this lady, and I just hated how she and the other patients were being treated. So I think of this as really the turning point. I, I consider it my era of therapeutic anger, where I had the audacity to believe that I could do better than that, and I really thought anybody can do better than that. And so the, the question was, how do you make a contribution to a field that's this primitive? And that became the turning point. I started studying psychology. I discovered not only did I have a profound interest in it, but I had a knack for it. And then when I started doing clinical training, it became readily apparent to me that I had a different way of thinking about things, that the things that I was learning academically really had very little utility outside the classroom. And so the opportunity to become an innovator was readily apparent. The necessity of addressing widespread problems that nobody had really paid much attention to. Uh, and I'm referring specifically to depression, which even then was the most common mood disorder, but there were no good treatments for it. There was hardly any attention paid to it. It was assumed to be a biological illness 
illness and a genetic problem. And there was a lot of room for me to, to start to develop other ways of looking at things. Powerful story that you're experienced with that woman. And I think one yeah. of the things of many we'll talk about today, you're known for being able to take something which is very linear and pathologizing and stigmatized like depression of which you're known for and humanizing it and fighting against some of these myths and really staying systemic while being in a very linear pathologizing world of, of clinical psychology and you're a clinical psychologist you're very much a family therapist and we're going to talk about your background too but early on you knew that and i always ask our guest especially those that have had the impact that you've had, how you balance that in this kind of linear psychopathology-based world while also seeing strength and health. I mean, it's, it's a skill that all MFTs, whether young or old, have to have, but it really seems in listening to that story, you, you picked up on that early on. Well, you, know, you have the recognition that even people who have problems, you know, they, they may have difficulties, but they also have strengths. And it really is a question of, do you look for and find what's wrong with people? Do you look for and find what's right with people? Now, it's hardly an original idea with me. You know, the, the field of positive psychology has really grown dramatically in the last 20 years, uh, spearheaded by the seminal contributions of Martin Seligman. But it was hardly original with him. Uh, Milton Erickson was writing about focusing on people's strengths in the 1930s. Abraham Maslow was talking about people becoming self-actualized in the 50s. Carl Rogers talking about how to become fully human in the 60s. Virginia Satir, you know, the pioneer family therapist, she was one of my mentors. And she used to say to me routinely, Michael, if you want the flowers to grow, you have to plant them where the soil is fertile. And I would say, that's a really great gardening tip. What the heck are you talking about? And it was really just her way of saying that, that you can focus on and build on people's strengths. And I have absorbed that. And I thought that was a really unique perspective in some ways and just a common sense perspective in other ways. What you, first principle you learn when you study hypnosis in particular is that what you focus on, you amplify. And I would much prefer to focus on people's strengths and, and help amplify those. So if we, if we frame it as a question of, is the goal of therapy to reduce pathology or expand wellness, I will come down on the side of expanding wellness every time. Wow, that's so well said, and you you just dropped a, a lot of names, and I got to ask you about all of them. Uh, Virginia Satir, someone that is now certainly so well regarded in the field, often, especially the the field of pathologizing, um, women bashing, kind of not going inside the black box, not wanting to deal with emotion wasn't really ready for her at the time. I wonder what that experience was like, and. Uh, Part of the reason we started this series is to document people while we're still here. We won't get the chance to talk to Virginia Satir, but I am curious. That must have been a powerful uh, relationship. What are your favorite memories of Virginia Satir? There are many different uh, memories. You know, she spoke to me at least openly about the sexism that she encountered. You know, that that when she was the the first person that she knew of that was actually seeing families, and how she was actively being discouraged from doing that because, of course, the prevailing wisdom at the time was you shouldn't talk to family members because that was going to presumably contaminate the transference when transference was the predominant viewpoint 
the psychoanalytic perspective. So people were not initially very supportive of the work that she was doing, and she, she spoke about that. I don't think she belabored it, I don't think she overstated it, but she was acutely aware of the fact that she was doing two things that were not particularly well regarded initially, and that was one, being a woman in the field, and two, seeing families. And then as her work became more sophisticated and nuanced, and people started paying more attention to what she was doing, she attracted a huge following. People came from all over to study with her. One of the things that was, I think, interesting about her was that, well, I'll just say it this way, I I would watch her do demonstrations And I'm the kind of person who likes to pick things apart. I like to understand not only what works, but how it works and why it works. And that's particularly true in the realm of therapeutic interventions. So, you know, watching somebody do a great clinical demonstration is always inspiring, but to me, what matters more are the thousand questions that I want to ask afterwards. And this was a fairly uh, common interaction between Virginia and me where she would work her magic and do a really amazing demonstration. And then I would ask her afterwards, well, why did you say this? And why did you do that? And her standard answer was, oh, Michael, you know, I fly by the seat of my pants. Well, that kind of spontaneity was fantastic for her because of her level of experience and insight and understanding. It sometimes frustrated me that I would have preferred a more clear and concise answer about the basis for the intervention and what her appraisal was of why it worked. So um, we had lots of interesting discussions and she was uh, an amazing intellect. She was all heart and soul, just one of the amazing people I've met along the way. That's great. And and another name you mentioned, Milton Erickson, who also on on the surface, very different than Virginia Satir, obviously. Yes. Indirect hypnotic suggestion. And when I think of you, if we're playing word association, yes, I think of depression and then I think of hypnosis. So tell us about being influenced by Milton Erickson. Well, assumption is that I met Milton Erickson, which I never did. I was on his waiting list when he passed away. And so I never had the opportunity to study with him directly. And it's kind of a peculiar thing that um, I'm considered one of the leading experts on Erickson's work, never having met the man. But I am so tuned into the world of hypnosis, you can't really study hypnosis without becoming very cognizant of Erickson's work and its influence. And there are others, other people who have also been major contributors to the field of hypnosis that have also been strong influences of mine. Uh, much of what I, I've learned about Erickson that isn't in books came from all of the years that I spent with Jay Haley. Jay was a good friend and a good mentor of mine for more than 20 years. And uh, Jay, as you know, was really almost single-handedly responsible for bringing Milton Erickson's work to a much wider audience. Uncommon Therapy. I tell everybody that book will still hold the test of time if you crack it open today, without a doubt. Well, I'll tell you. I, you know, not long before Jay passed away, we we were talking about uncommon therapy and the influence that it's had on the field. And he was talking about all the people who write to him to say that they became a therapist after they read uncommon therapy. And I said to him, Jay, you know, 
whenever I want to be reminded of what therapeutic genius looks like, I read Uncommon Therapy probably once a year. And Jay digested that for a moment before he said, you know, I think everybody should read Uncommon Therapy once a year. And then he paused and then he added, and they should probably buy a new copy each time. <laughs> so he, he was a a character, as so many of our luminaries in the field were. Tell me a, a favorite Jay Haley story and how he influenced you. Oh, boy. I, you know, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I'm not using at least one or two things that I learned from Jay. I think probably the most telling story is the first story. Um, when I was a young therapist, I was very aggressive about getting into contact with the people who were the pioneers in the field, that I wanted to go study with the people who were the best, and I was quite assertive slash aggressive about doing that, which is how I really have had the opportunity to, to meet and spend ample amounts of time with so many of these luminaries that you refer to. And so I called Jay Haley, wanting to learn more about hypnosis and strategic therapy, uh, as a student at Michigan, a very psychoanalytic program, his approach to strategic work was way outside my academic background, way outside my comfort zone. It seemed really unusual, to say the least, to me, and, and maybe even a little bit off. But I had heard him speak a number of times, and you couldn't help but be impressed by this man who was so deep in his thinking, so articulate in expressing his ideas. And I don't know anybody who had a better sense of the ironies of the field than Jay did. So when I called him and said, you know, I'd love to come into supervision with you. This is one of the differences in the field. You know, the, these were the days when you could call Aaron Beck and Albert Ellis and Jay Haley and they'd answer their own phone. You know, things things that would never happen today. So I said, I'd, you know, I'd, I'm intimidated, but I'd love to come into supervision with you. And to my amazement, he said, okay. So I got ready for my first meeting with him and I was young and green and I wanted to impress him with my knowledge knowledge of psychobabble and all the diagnostic nomenclature that would make me sound uh, professional, I thought. And boy, was I barking up the wrong tree with all of that. Because I came to him and I presented a case that, you know, here's this woman who has uh, borderline personality disorder with ego dystonic cognitions, and she has a history of impulsive. And I mean, I went through a whole bunch of terminology before I finally get to my question at the end of it, which was, so what would you do with her? And Jay didn't answer for the longest time. I mean, really made me squirm. I was absolutely sure I had said things that were obviously stupid, and he was trying to find a way to tell me that I was an idiot before he finally said, I wouldn't let her have those problems. And, you know, I smiled and nodded my head as if I had a clue of what he was talking about. And that was the opening round of what took me a very long time to fully grasp, which was really two, me two main messages, many more, but two main messages. One is that people are more than their diagnostic labels. And two, the big lesson that really defines strategic therapy, never define a problem in unsolvable terms. And... As I 
got immersed in his world and the world of strategic therapy. This was so alien to me. I genuinely believe that all of the psychoanalytic training that I had had to that point worked against me learning to think strategically. I, I literally believe that I had to spend years unlearning all that analytic framework in order to really grasp the heart, the essence, the soul of what strategic therapy is really about and the methods that are embedded within strategic therapy like hypnosis. Uh, your pathway is so much like, though, many of the pioneers in the field that were rebelling against this problems within people, people diagnoses, these psychoanalytic backgrounds. So it seems like always felt thought systemically, but then you got to sit under the learning tree of someone like Jay Haley and Virginia Satir, for that matter. When I started out learning therapy back in uh, 1811, you know, there, there wasn't anything. You know, the, the psychoanalytic model was the predominant model in the field. You know, behaviorism was in its infancy. Cognitive therapy wasn't invented yet. It was in its gestational period. Aaron Beck was, was one of my mentors. I was really attracted to his work. So, you know, coming to Jay, who had such a hugely different perspective about things, and, you know, perspective aside, it just had its own logic to it, and it worked. You know, therapy was not brief at the time. Therapy was not strategic. You still had people arguing over over whether it was morally and ethically okay to influence your clients. Uh, it, was, it was really you know, a, a major transition point in the field, and there were really not that many people who could speak credibly to how do we make therapy a briefer process that is oriented towards change at a time when people thought the primary goal of therapy was to promote insight. And that yeah, if they, just think, think uh, about if people, like uh, all of these people coming before uh, Virginia Satir was a social worker, Beck was a psychologist, Jay Haley had a degree in library science. He came from so outside of the box, so to speak, it gave him these fresh eyes. And so much of the field was a rejection of what came before and to do it differently. And I can't imagine, this is fascinating to me, that you were really on the ground floor being influenced by so many important figures. Now, to me, that could lead to like confusion, a kind of a strain of I've been studying these strategic interventions, and then I'm being mentored by Virginia Satira, who's very humanistic and leads with emotion, and then someone who's very cognitive, like Aaron Beck. How do you integrate all of these things as a young professional? Yeah, it actually provided a remarkable amount of clarity rather than confusion. I can answer it metaphorically. The Milton Erickson Foundation in Phoenix hosts a conference called the Evolution of Psychotherapy. And in fact, there's one uh, scheduled in late 2022. Yeah, that and, conference and, is like the Olympics. Everybody knows about it. It comes around every yeah, couple of years and it is and a, must, a must attend. Yeah. And it's a, it's a privilege for me to, to be a part of that faculty. Uh, but in 1985, when they held the first one, and there were all of these people who were still alive. Virginia was still alive. Jay was there. Carl Whitaker was there. Albert Ellis was there. Uh, Victor Frankl was there. You had amazing people, which is how it came to be known as the Woodstock of psychotherapy. And then, 
you could literally walk from room to room and be with somebody who's considered one of the pioneers of the field. So you, you walk into a room with Jay and there he is talking about the, the social hierarchy in the family and the necessity of focusing on more than the individual. And then you have somebody like James Masterson talking about how important it is to focus on the individual and their individual psychodynamics. And then you've got Alexander Lowen talking about focusing on the body. And then you've got Beck talking about focusing on the mind and cognitions. And you, you have literally all of these people who are brilliant and articulate and well-recognized who have virtually opposite opinions about how to approach therapy. And, and the clarity that it provided for me by being around all of these people was that there are how many different entry points into the system called the human being. And whether you come at them from this angle or that angle, it's still going to make a difference. It's still going to introduce shifts in, in the way that they do things. And that's all we're really trying to do anyway. So it became abundantly clear to me early on, it's not about doing therapy correctly. It's about doing therapy well. And there's a big, big difference in trying to be right versus trying to be effective. So that, that clarity saved me a lot of self-doubt and a lot of rumination of wondering, am I doing this the right way? That question became irrelevant. It really just became a question of how can I do this better? How can I do this more effectively? How can I do things in, in a more pronounced way that achieve the results that I want to achieve. And even that question was considered, you know, a, a wrong question to be asking at the time. And even now, I, I still get people who come up to me at my workshops and they'll say to me, gee, Michael, I really like your work a lot, but brace yourself, Michael, here it comes again. They'll say to me, but you're so goal oriented. Don't you know it's about the journey, not the destination? And the reality is that only therapists say that. Clients never say that. Clients never come into therapy and say, uh, hi, I'd like to go on a journey. They, you know, they, they want results and they want results now. And learning to think in those terms is a great progression in this field that the field itself in general, not everybody, but in general, the field has become far more results oriented. I couldn't agree with you more. When you think of hypnosis, right, and you told us how you got interested in studying depression and then obviously working with Jay and learning about Milton Erickson. First of all, you've debunked a lot of myths of, about hypnosis that some, sometimes it gets a bad rap, and I think you've made it systemic and relevant to couple and family therapists. I know that's a large question, but how have you managed to do that? Well, you know, hypnosis is a microcosm, a concentration of the kinds of things that happen in therapy anyway. Hypnosis amplifies the therapeutic alliance. So whether your alliance is being formed with a couple, a family, or an individual, it, it certainly increases the intensity of that. It creates this wonderful little bubble between you and your client or clients that make the messages that you want to transmit to them even more focused. But I, you know, again, I, I had the opportunity so early on to find this and, and work it. When I was 19 years old and, and uh, was at Michigan studying psychology now and starting to get into it in a very serious way, we were told from the analytic perspective, don't bother to study hypnosis. There's really 
really nothing there that's that's worth pursuing. So not long after that lecture, I received a flyer in the mail from a local psychologist who was going to be doing a hypnosis training. So I immediately signed up for it, which tells you something about my personality. And I had never seen hypnosis demonstrated. I had never heard a clinician talk about the merits of hypnosis. I didn't really know anything about it other than the silly Hollywood stuff that you saw in television and movies. So I was fascinated by that and just it stood to reason to me that if you can influence people for the better or for the worse in the way that hypnosis is often portrayed, you could likewise influence people for the better. And so I went to this two-day workshop. The first day it was all didactic and philosophical and theoretical and talking about different hypnotic phenomena and all that kind of material, which was interesting to me. But the kicker came on the second day when the guy leading the workshop wanted to do a clinical demonstration. He asked for a demonstration subject and this woman volunteered. And I, again, never having seen a clinical demonstration of hypnosis before, I grabbed a seat up front. I didn't want to miss a word. I didn't want to miss anything. I wanted to see what mind control looked like up front and close. And this lady tells this heartbreaking story of having been in a terrible car accident three years earlier. Her whole body was broken up. Uh, She has had multiple surgeries. Uh, She's been on the path of healing and she has mostly recovered except for a very chronic and very severe uh, pain in her leg, which she just has not been able to uh, overcome. It has been detrimental to her life. She has not been able to practice to the extent that she used to. It was causing financial hardship, social hardship, life hardship. I mean, it was a terribly sad story. And I remember vividly sitting there thinking to myself, what can this guy possibly say to her that's going to make a difference? And so, you know, he talked with her about all of this. And after about 20 minutes, 25 minutes of interviewing her, he began the hypnosis session, invited her to arrange herself in a position that was comfortable, started talking to her about relaxing and focusing. And I kept waiting for the mind control stuff. And it was so gentle and it was so positive and it was so comforting. And then he started offering these really what I considered to be bizarre suggestions about the pain in her leg turning into a dark, viscous liquid, and the liquid would start flowing down her leg, and it would flow down her leg into her shoe where it would accumulate, and then it would overflow her shoe, and it would become a puddle of pain on the floor. And I'm listening to all this imagery, and I'm thinking, this guy had a psychotic break or something. I should be worried about this guy. And then you look at this lady's face, and it was just a magical transformation. And I was dying to know what was going on in there. You could see that something was going on in there that was pretty profound. So this went on for probably another 45 minutes or so. And then when he he ends the hypnosis session and invites her to reorient, she sat there for probably 20 or 30 seconds and didn't say a word. And then she she started crying. And she finally said, This is the first time in three years that I've been pain-free. And it was literally in that moment, my thought was, I have got to learn how to do this. And I have literally spent every day of my professional life since then studying hypnosis, learning hypnosis, practicing hypnosis, watching people do things. You know, Milton Erickson 
to psychiatry was what William Kroger was to medicine. William Kroger was a pioneering physician who was the, the medical guy doing hypnosis. He, you know, he was the person who had the audacity to walk up to an operating table and cut people open with just the hypnosis that he provided them. And Kroger was my mentor for 12 years. He was easily three of the most brilliant people I've ever met. And uh, I mean, he, he was just unbelievable. The, the range of knowledge, the depth of knowledge, and the courage that he had to do things that nobody else did. You know, Erickson was brilliant, and he, you know, he, but he wasn't a surgeon, and he, he didn't use these kinds of approaches where you really have to generate a dramatic response immediately. You know, the, the anesthesia is there or it isn't. So, wow. and it, you know, it's just, it's just remarkable stuff. And watching people, you know, now all these years later, all the things that I've seen people do in hypnosis that even while I'm watching it, I'm thinking to myself, this is not possible, except it is. And so the, the field has grown. It has maintained my interest. If I was in charge of clinical training programs, every MFT in the universe would get trained in hypnosis almost right off the bat to learn how people generate subjective experience, to learn about the role of suggestion, to learn about how people's belief systems and mindsets influence physiology and, and clinical response. Uh, it's just a fascinating, fascinating domain. And I, I have never tired of it. I'm still working it. I just finished a brand new book now, uh, a few weeks ago, that will come out in early 2021 called Process-Oriented Hypnosis. It still holds my interest. I'm still learning and growing and uh, experimenting. It's just an amazing domain. Yeah. I love hearing you tell stories. That is powerful. So when you saw that demonstration, you're like, I got to learn in that moment this in that in wow, that moment that is powerful and, and that's now. a moment that lasted a lifetime uh i don't think a lot of mfts get to see that and i'm i'm wondering because i have some questions for you about you know the future of, of training but what do you think to educate our listeners many have never seen such a powerful thing and only see what they see on tvs or think yeah. you know it's hypnosis is not mm. part of psychotherapy what are the biggest myths that you think you've been able to dis dispel by uh, your pioneering work and, well, and your li yeah. lifetime practice dedicated to continuing to get better at these techniques. There, there are a number of myths that, that I could describe. I'll just mention a couple of the key ones. You know, the, the predominant myth is that somehow in hypnosis you're going to lose control of yourself. And that is so terribly unfortunate. You know, keeping in mind, I'm a clinician. And if hypnosis was a way of disempowering people, it wouldn't interest me in the least. The whole point is empowering people through the therapy that we do. And the, the most uh, expedient and dramatic way I know of empowering people quickly is through hypnosis. And so you know, if hypnosis was a way of disempowering people, it wouldn't interest me. Nobody ever walks into my office and says, hi, will you help me lose control of myself? It's, it's the, the reverse. 
So if what you're trying to do is enhance people's sense of personal control, if you're interested in teaching emotional self-regulation, if you're interested in teaching people how to regulate and manage pain in their body and how to regulate the quality of their thoughts and all of those things that we routinely do in therapy, then hypnosis should be a given in your practice. I think another myth is that somehow uh, hypnosis can reliably excavate presumably repressed memories. I wrote a book about this in the 90s called Suggestions of Abuse when the repressed memory controversy was at its peak and hypnosis was front and center in that controversy because people were using hypnosis inappropriately to try and excavate or uncover these presumably repressed memories of abuse. Well, for many years after that, people were understanding you can't use hypnosis to uncover these memories because the very process of digging for these memories can create them. And you're never going to realize that you actually co-created the very memories that you're then having to treat. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, it's as if history is repeating itself. You've got a whole generation of new therapists that haven't learned about the vulnerabilities of memory and the power of suggestion. And so I've been getting cases coming my way again, much to my distress, of people wanting to use hypnosis to uncover these memories that they assume are there waiting to be excavated. So, uh, I would hope that people would learn about how memory works, what what the constructive nature of memory is, and what the role of suggestion is in being able to contaminate people's memories. And I think that this yeah. is one of the other myths that somehow hypnosis is separate and distinct from the other things that you do. Every single person listening to this podcast is highly suggestive in the work that they do. And if you don't know that, that is scary to me. If you haven't studied the nature of suggestion and the different qualities of suggestion and what makes suggestion powerful, then you have a gap in your knowledge base. And that can easily work against you in terms of the way that you approach doing therapy. So when I said if I was in charge of training programs, hypnosis would be one of the first courses I would require of people so that they would learn how to know when they're being suggestive and how to be suggestive more effectively and how to recognize the different types of suggestions and how to construct suggestions so that they're more likely to be accepted and how to make use of a variety of suggestions, some of which will be consciously perceived and some of which will not. And the whole range of really understanding how do we find and amplify the hidden resources that people have. You know, when this lady had the session for pain management, I'm talking about the lady now with the car accident and the pain in her leg, what is so dramatic about that story to me is that she came into this session having no idea that she could learn a technique for managing pain. And when somebody discovers that they have this hidden ability, that there has never been a context to bring out the way hypnosis serves as a context to bring out these resources. How does it change somebody's self-image when they discover that they have an ability they didn't know they had, much less a dramatic ability like controlling the pain that's been running your life for the last three years? Yeah, pause there for a second. That is, uh, you said spot on. I think one of the myths is hypnosis is something that's done to you. And in some ways it is by 
skilled person. You cannot do this without having a lot of practice and training, but it, it unlocks the potential, the strength in a client. So yes. that is that yes, is the key yes, to yes. the buy-in. That is it, my friend. And you said yes, it so yes, passionately. Yeah. Like I can tell just listening to you, you know, you have this inward passion, but it comes out in this very hypnotic, very nice delivery, but it's very clear how much you love this stuff. Now, how did you integrate your love for this? Because I, I see you as a champion of articulately and passionately defending, clearing up some of these myths, both with hypnosis in the field of psychotherapy and also with depression. How did you merge those two loves? I'm an integrative guy, so tell me how you integrated depression and hypnosis. It became apparent to me very early on, especially through my uh, contact with Aaron Beck and Albert Ellis, how much of depression was really a disorder of perspective. That if you can improve people's experience by changing the quality of their thoughts or by, by having them run experiments that demonstrate to them how distorted their perspective really is. And then as the research continued to evolve in the realm of placebos and the discovery uh, that depression and anxiety too, for that matter, are two disorders that are highly responsive to placebo-based interventions. It just confirmed over and over again that these are disorders largely influenced by perspective. And this is what hypnosis does best. How do I introduce in a concentrated way a shift in perspective and an alternate way of perceiving yourself? When, when this woman went through this pain management strategy, she was redefining her relationship with her body. She was altering her perceptions about the uncontrollable nature of the pain as she had previously seen it. And to create experiences where people could see themselves differently, experience themselves differently, became a, a really obvious intersection between hypnosis and depression. And yet, at the time that I started experimenting with my depressed clients using hypnosis, the use of hypnosis was intensely frowned upon that hypnosis was going to create suicidal feelings and it was going to stimulate psychotic reactions and other kinds of myths that predominated. I wrote a book in 1992 called Hypnosis and the Treatment of Depressions, which was the very first book on the subject. And I spent the first several chapters talking about how people had inadvertently discouraged the use and sometimes intentionally discouraged the use of hypnosis in treating depression for all the wrong reasons. You know, the, the old mythology that depression was anger turned inwards and that you were going to strip people of their defenses by using hypnosis. Myths about depression, myths about hypnosis that needed to be corrected. So that's one of my lasting contributions was literally changing the field's acceptance of hypnosis as a treatment to where now it is standard at every therapy conference and every hypnosis conference to talk about different ways of using hypnosis and treating depression. So it, it was a, a natural transition for me as my understanding of both these fields deepened that I could use hypnosis for, to teach very particular skills. How much of therapy is about teaching skills, psychoeducation and, and experimentation? And one of the things that I'll comment on just briefly is we have ample evidence from lots of decades of research that 
one of the most, perhaps the most powerful factor influencing how a client reacts to therapy overall is the quality of their expectations, the expectancy and treatment response. And one of the things that characterizes depression is hopelessness, negative expectations, the lack of positive expectancy. Well, there is a particular hypnotic phenomenon called age progression, where age regression involves taking people into their history. Age progression involves taking people forward in time experientially. It's literally about implanting self-fulfilling prophecies and positive possibilities. And to use hypnosis as a vehicle for instilling positive expectations in people is a very powerful intervention. For listeners who are interested, I filmed an interview with Aaron Beck where it was he was just as interested in interviewing me about hypnosis because he's never had any training in hypnosis. So when I started talking, about, you know, he, he talks about automatic thoughts and the importance of identifying automatic thoughts and correcting automatic thoughts. But but he did not discover automatic thoughts. A hundred years ago in the literature of hypnosis, people were describing what is called idiocognition, automatic thoughts. And the idea of using hypnosis to instill positive automatic thoughts instead of trying to uncover and correct negative automatic thoughts. And when I started talking about this with Beck, I mean, you could see his bow tied flipping in circles because this was a totally different quality of perspective that was alien to him because he never had any hypnosis training. So a lot of entrees into the world of depression, the helplessness that hypnosis could help quell by empowering people, the hopelessness of depression by helping people develop the kind of positive expectancy that would motivate them to take action when we know that action is critical to recover recovery from depression. So it was a it was a very natural integration. You're going to blow some people that don't know of your work just by that last couple of minutes, you're going to blow their minds is turning automatic thoughts on their head and the kind of the buffer seeing health and strength and planting these positive positive expectancies. What an amazing contribution. Now, just like some of your mentors that had to have a thick skin and took a lot of flack for being a trendsetter and a trailblazer, now you're sought after and respected in all these different communities. You know, you have one foot in the family therapy community, one foot in clinical psychology and the world of hypnosis. How were you initially met, especially in the depression world, where people saw this, again, as very foreign? How did you deal with people that didn't get it right away? Well, it's really hard to argue with results. And so, you know, when people would get into theoretical arguments, and then I'd say, just watch the work and watch what happens. One of the problems that people have, unfortunately, in our field is that they can get so rigidly locked into their own belief system and their own theoretical orientation, people who would rather be right than effective. And so theories aside and getting into philosophical discussions aside, when you watch a session that produces a fairly instant response to one degree or another, and then you're able to do follow-up work that demonstrates an enduring uh, benefit, uh, people's skepticism gives way to a recognition that there is something here. And so what was initially a a basis for criticism, people who openly criticized me for uh, using hypnosis, especially with people that they thought were highly vulnerable, 
namely depressed folks, uh, it became very apparent very quickly that there was something here worth pursuing. And uh, the criticisms actually fell away pretty quickly. The time that I experienced the greatest amount of personal criticism was when I wrote the book Suggestions of Abuse and talked about therapists who were unintentionally damaging their clients by operating on the premise that there were these hidden memories of abuse that were regulating this person's symptom picture. And when I was talking about therapists who were who were actually damaging people by doing this, there was a lot a lot of pushback against that because people thought I was somehow discounting survivors, which of course I wasn't. But you know, people reacted as if that was my message. Uh, they clearly didn't even read the subtitle of the book, which was True and False Memories of Childhood Sexual Abuse. Um, so that became an, a big issue, and I got a lot of negative feedback, a lot of hate mail, literally. Uh, a couple of uh, death threats came my way even. But I was ultimately saved by the number of professional associations. At the time I wrote the book, nobody had really dealt with this. There were no professional guidelines. I offered my own guidelines of what made sense given my knowledge of hypnosis, memory, suggestion, and, and therapy. I created a set of guidelines for how I thought therapists could deal with the issue of repressed memories responsibly. And what really saved me from the vicious backlash that I had received was the fact that so many professional associations ended up adopting my guidelines in, in entirety. So I came out smelling like a rose, but it was a rather unpleasant path until those changes took place. Yeah, thank you sharing that journey. And any model developer or pioneer that I've interviewed or came before, they had to be able to uh, to go through the rough paths to get to the roses at the end. So I couldn't agree with you more that this type of training is necessary, but many people reject what they don't know. So a lot of it is uh, what you've helped correct. Yeah, I think people today. think yeah. they know, so what more is right. correct? And, uh, you know, and then when they hear me say, well, I've, I've spent the last half century studying these things in great detail, and they wonder, well, what? how can you spend that much time on it? But it's like therapy itself. You know, when do you know enough therapy? Uh, yeah, this is, it's an open-ended, you're, you, there's, you're never going to reach a point where you say, okay, now I know everything there is. I no say often, I say often, it's yeah. another one, you know, I'm a it, common factors guy and another yeah. thing, interview, yeah. doing these interviews, it's like it's the greatest profession because as long as you stay attuned and aware, you can grow, you don't age out, you can always get better. The same reason you're an expert in the field and you're still refining your technique and your ability to connect with clients using this hypnotic suggestion. So back to your point, I think to change things, right? You have to have a top-down approach. You have to have the stakeholders training the therapist. And that in, in our world or my world of MFT training, there's not a lot of master's level training programs or doctoral level for that matter, training in hypnosis. Many people are going to listen to this. Many have heard of you before. It's just going to reaffirm why they follow and like you and look at your books and anything else. But if I'm getting turned on to this today, whether I'm young or old and systemically oriented, where do I go to get trained in this? Because powerful in your story was the actual seeing it. You're a wonderful writer. Those are great books, but there is something about seeing it and getting experientially trained in it. Where would I go if I like what I've heard this hour? You would go to my website and you would look at the range of trainings that I'm providing still. 
and will continue to for the foreseeable future. The trainings that range uh, in length and intensity, but the, the, the flagship training that I do is a 100-hour, three-phase training where people get exposed to the field and they develop all the key skills and they walk away from that training really having a depth of understanding of what the field's about. They acquire a lot of the skills that they're going to need. And of course, the greatest skill they're going to acquire is how to acquire more skill. They'll they'll learn a lot. And uh, so I'm happy to continue to provide those trainings. Uh, There are a number of MFT, uh, state MFT, associations that have sponsored that training and uh, always happy to do it whenever I can. A 40 plus year career, passionate we can tell. And one of the reasons I believe after listening to this today, your appreciation of the past, it's almost like you have this historian part and you got to sit under the learning tree of all these great first generation family therapists with very different orientations. And you figured out instead of trying to fit clients to, to your way of working, this is what all master level clinicians find find out they adapt to the client and they you using these powerful hypnotic techniques to to do that and enhance their strengths what do you want to do in the next stage of your career there are a lot of interests that i have some of them are within the profession some of them are outside the profession i'm very mindful of this very unique opportunity i had a number of years ago when i was invited into a captive breeding of elephants program Uh, here in San Diego. And that was an extraordinary experience. You know, one of the things that I have been interested in my entire professional life has been how people do things well. And the opportunity to spend time with all of these pioneers and learning their thought processes and how they regulate their responses and how they determine whether to respond from this level or that level uh, in, in a particular quality of interaction. And, and then asking other kinds of questions like who recovers from depression and how do they do that and what are the common denominators of people who get better and, and what are the common denominators of the people who don't. So I've actually amassed quite a lot of insights about what it takes to be effective in a variety of arenas, and I've, I've written about these things. Well, nothing prepared me for uh, one day when I got a phone call from the San Diego Wild Animal Park. Now, I would guess that most people listening to this have heard of the world-famous San Diego Zoo. And the San Diego Zoo is run by the Zoological Society of San Diego, and they have a sister park called the San Diego Wild Animal Park. It has since changed its name to the San Diego Zoo Safari Park, but it was the Wild Animal Park at the time they called me. So this guy calls me, and he says, hi, I'm Jim, I'm calling from the Wild Animal Park. And then he launches into this mile-a-minute narrative about how elephants are an endangered species and the populations of elephants in the wild have been cut in half in the last decade. And if elephants aren't saved, they could become extinct in as little as 25 years. And there are only three breeding programs in America that can accommodate breeding of elephants because breeding of elephants is dangerous and keeping 
keeping male elephants around is dangerous because they go through these periods called must where the testosterone is flowing heavily and they become very aggressive and dangerous. And, and I mean, this guy's talking at me a mile a minute and I'm trying to figure out what is this guy going on about? And then I finally interrupt him and say, look, I don't know why, why you're calling me, but you clearly must have a wrong number because I'm a clinical psychologist and a marriage family therapist and I don't, you know, you're talking to me about elephants. And he says, just hold on, I'll, I'll get to it. So he goes on talking about how the wild animal park has 23 elephants and they want to establish a breeding herd of 120 elephants. So finally he gets to it and he says, we have a guy who's in charge of our program. His name is Alan and Alan is brilliant with the elephants. He is so good at what he does. He is considered by everybody in the zoological world to be the premier elephant trainer on the planet. The problem is, if we're going to expand our herd from 23 to 120 elephants, we are going to need to have many more trainers, many more keepers. You can't just put an ad in the newspaper for elephant trainers. We're going to have to train them and we want them to be safe. And handling elephants is dangerous. Elephants are very large and very strong. And if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you can easily get squashed. And we don't want anybody getting hurt or killed. The problem is, as wonderful as Alan is with the elephants, when you ask him, how do you do what you do? He very insightfully says, I don't know. I just do it. It's all about intuition. So he says, here's why I'm calling you, Dr. Yapko. Your reputation for figuring out how people do things right now is priceless to us. If you could come out to the Wild Animal Park and study Alan and figure out how he does what he does with the elephants so that you could develop the training protocols for all the new elephant trainers and keepers we're going to need to hire. And instantly, my brain is swimming with, are you kidding me? Work with elephants? study elephant-human interactions, expose myself to the dangers that they're worried about with these new trainers and keepers? How can I do that? And then in the next eighth of a second, my thought was, how can I not do that? So I said, I'm in. So I told them how I would want to proceed, how I would need to meet with Alan, how I need to be with Alan, you know, doing everything Alan does, that I'm going to be handling the elephants the same way he does, and I'm going to be asking him 10,000 questions a day. So we set up a meeting, and long story short, Alan and I got along great. I told him I'm going to be following you around, doing everything you do. I'm going to be asking you 10,000 questions a day, most of which you're not going to be able to answer. I hope you won't get frustrated. I hope you won't punch me in the face. And he was so patient about it and so good about it. And so I spent the next three years with elephants, learning more about elephants than anyone you are likely to meet in your lifetime. If you ever need your elephant trained, I will be happy to help you do that. And I ended up developing the training protocols. It became a very successful thing. And I actually got invitations from other zoos around the world. Will you come do for us what you did for San Diego? And I literally had to make a decision. Am I going to stay in the clinical world or am I going to move into the zoological world? Because every single day, every single hour, every single minute I spent with elephants was glorious. Another commonality that I've found in, in 
interviewing are trailblazers is what they do well, right? And this is the beautiful thing about isomorphs and thinking systemically. Uh, pretty much everybody has found another application or an extension to generalize what they do. And here's someone, again, this fell into your lap. They found you, product of you speaking and being a good writer and probably also a product of geographically where you were, but wow. And again, another time where the seminal thing tying together our, our time together today. And I thank you so much. You've had these series of moments in life. You saw something, you picked up on it and you didn't, soothing as you can be, you didn't hesitate. You said, I want to do that. The what work, an amazing journey that was. Yeah, wow. The work that we do for every therapist out there. The work that we do is applicable in how many more environments than just the clinical environment. And especially at a time now when the world is growing increasingly desperate, where social forces are working against mental health, and where what we do for a living has attained a level of importance beyond what any of us could have imagined. I think it's critically important to see beyond the clinical interaction to see all the different places. And that really was a learning experience for me. I'm guilty of that. Up until the time that I got invited into this elephant breeding program, I had no idea that my clinical skills were relevant anywhere else. And now I realize they're relevant everywhere else. Yeah, we're not going to have any better story than that to end it up. Thank you. Thank you so much. People can go to yapco.com. If I want to see the work with the elephants, and I've never heard of your venture into this over the past couple of years, where do I find that? It's on my website as well. I wrote okay. a detailed narrative of my experience. On my website, people will discover that I have an elephant logo. One of the sections of my homepage is addressing the question, why the elephant logo? And it provides a link to a very detailed article that I wrote about my work with the elephants. Outstanding. You have some great takes on many different things in the psychotherapy world and beyond. In the networker, you write a lot and post on there. But I thank you so much for the time. And who knows, you, we can do this again in the future. But uh, I thank you for your, your dedication, your passion, your both innovation and your respect for the history of the field, Michael. We're kindred spirits in that way. Thank I, you so much. for. I appreciate us. it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That brings it to a close. Another successful installment of the AAMFT podcast, the Pioneer Series, one of my favorite parts of the show. Wow, Michael had some amazing stories. He's worked with some amazing people and gone on to integrate hypnosis into systemic practice of working with individuals, couples, and families. Everything Michael Yapko related that he mentioned, and then some, is at yapko.com. Very simple. Y-A-P-K-O.com. And you will see the logo with the elephant. You know, I had known about his foray into animal systems. We think about human systems, but to hear that story and how it started was so cool. And it just shows you that how we think as systemically minded therapists has applications to larger systems and even ways of working with different people and different groups, in this case, animals that we couldn't even imagine. How cool is that? You might also find Michael Yapko at amft.org. During the pandemic, AMFT is there for you. And they developed their at-home series, bringing leaders in the field virtually to you to talk about not only the practice of MFT, but how to adapt in these challenging times. So people like Harry Aponte, Sue Johnson, Manajay Danishpour, David Snarch, all guests and all in the back installments of the AMFT podcast in the first season, but they've also come together virtually 
during the pandemic. So it's called At Home Series NFT.org slash at home and we'll see Michael Gatko. His talk entitled, It's Crisis Time and We Need to Step Up Our Game. How Hypnosis Can Help Our Clients and Us. As always, I love hearing from you. Best way to get a hold of me, it's info at elicaram.com. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. The AMFT is simply at the AAMFT. Find us wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm partial to Apple Podcasts. We love a star rating and a review. You can also find us places like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. And until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.